the God that I know is trans. Like it, it it's just a hundred percent clear. Jesus is hundred percent God, hundred percent man. Like there's so many experiences in the Bible that like speak so directly to the experiences of people that Christians are over and over trying to oppress. Welcome back to I'm the Villain. So today we have my friend Wes, who actually interviewed me to go to college (laughs) Um, on the podcast. And um, he, well, you know what? I'll just let you give the audience whatever you think uh, they should know about you. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah. My name is Wes Willison. I live in Philly. Lived here since I went to Swarthmore. I worked there for a while with Isabel. We were in the admissions office together. Um, I live on a block that has 100 houses on it, 50 on each side of the street. Jesus. It's a very long block, and I've grown to love it. I've grown to appreciate what it's doing. Um, but if you've read any of the like urban planning books, you know that like this is too long of a block. It needs to be shorter. You know, this is just absurd. Um, but you know, that's part of the, the deal with living somewhere is you learn to appreciate it on its own terms. Yeah. That's, that's what I've come to appreciate. I, I moved here because I went up to Princeton for a master's. Um, at the seminary at Princeton mm-hmm. and living here allowed me to stay in the community that I care about, stay in the church that I care about, stay with friends. Like we have friends up and down the block, um, like literally on this block. Yeah. And that's been a real boon. I mean, it's like, it's kind of like living in college still where like, oh, you can walk so to people, you know, but it's I love so that. Fun. Yeah. Right. That's what and I, that's want. That's I talk a lot about how we wish to be here, how we wish we could still have that kind of lifestyle all the time. You know? All the time. You know, I think, I think I, I am not, fooling around when I say I think that's the future. I think yeah. we need to live like that. I think we yeah. need to live that close to each other because more than a block away, like intimacy is geometric. It's not scalar. Yeah. Like how far you are, if you're two blocks away, it's dramatically different than if you're one. If you're right. five blocks away, you might as well be a mile away. You know? Literally. It just it's it yeah, it's well, I I actually don't how how many blocks is in the city mile? <laughs> twenty. Mile like eight or something. I don't know. I thought it was twenty in New York I think it's twenty blocks is a mile. Yeah, something like that. So that I, I've come to believe that very firmly that like yeah. proximity engenders intimacy. Yeah. I have friends that live like in the same neighborhood as me, but what what would be a fifteen minute walk or like an eight minute bike ride? And you know, we hang out, but like definitely not as much as like we like in theory could be, you know, given how close we are together. We're living literally in the same neighborhood. Do you and do you and Isabel hang out? We did before the dark time. Before the dark time. Yeah. Yeah. Before the years of darkness. (laughs) Oh man. I, I kind of made an ass of myself because I was, I I just started a new job. Um, I'm working in real estate now and this is like a major, major transition. This is like the most I've ever been. I'm like handling money and working with people before. So I went to seminary because I wanted to work for the church. Um, I wanted to work for uh, building communities around meaning right helping people make meaning in community and helping people do that in routine in habit yeah um around things that connect us to the ecology of life right, right. the soil the earth in- incredibly different from what you're doing each other right incredibly different but the work that i did in seminary um i wrote a thesis on the theology of architecture and design and planning um and the ways in which um our surroundings basically platform us or afford the kinds of lives that we live, right? Are you familiar with the idea of affordances? You ever heard of this? Um, no. So affordances um, is a term that comes out of some psycho- psychology research on like how how people perceive 
um, there's this, uh, so if you ever listen to the podcast, 99% invisible, I like the older episodes, the newer stuff is fine. It's just like, there's some OG episodes that are super cool, but there's one that they do about what's called the Norman door. Um, and when you go to a door, when you walk up to a door, usually it's very apparent whether you need to push or pull, right? Yeah. Usually if like, if there's a horizontal bar, you push, if it's a vertical bar, your hand can wrap around it and you know to pull, but a lot of doors mess that up. Either they have two horizontal bars on either side, or they have two vertical bars, one on each side, right? Yeah. And when you come to that vertical bar and you push and the door doesn't open, are you a moron <laughs> or is the door poorly designed, right? Yeah. Um, a lot of Christianity is based around the premise that if you do something wrong, you're sinful. You've done your, you, it's, it's your human nature. It's you making a bad decision. Right. And a lot of what I was working on in seminary is this idea that no, actually the world is vibrant, uh, both for good and ill. Right. It, it points us. It affords ways of behaving. It, it platforms us into either lives of flourishing or lives of decay and, and dismay, um, despair. And so the ways in which we can evaluate our ecology have to include the built environment, yeah. the ways in which um, we are allowed or not allowed to thrive um, based on the, the designs that we've been locked into. And, you know, I could go for a long time on this. A lot of people want to take that, that argument and run with it um, metaphorically. And talk about things like the accommodation of God, which means like the way in which God meets us beyond um, our capacity to navigate our environment. God comes to us, mm -hmm. right? That's fine. But what I was interested in is literally. <laughs> You're like, no, no, no. I want to know about no, the literal like, things. I don't want the metaphors. I want the real thing. I want real communities. And what is happening when I live on a block that's a hundred houses long? Right. And like, what does that do for community? Right. Right. What does that afford? And what does that make impossible? What does it mean that we're this close to, you know, the train stops and all the people who make their homes underneath the train stops? What does that afford? What does that make impossible? Um, and all the ways in which like those kinds of conversations point to an ecology of the city that I'm really excited about. I'm still excited about that. Long way of saying I'm going into real estate because I want to work in this uh, all the time. And I want to help people apply their ethics, apply what they care about, apply the things that they believe in to these major, major decisions yeah. about where to place your body um, and where to invest a massive amount of your resources, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I just, I lucked into having a realtor who helped me think through some of those things when I bought this house. Um, and I, I just can't believe that it's so hard to find someone who would do that for other people who share convictions that I do, right? Mm -hmm. Like, how do you make a decision about real estate when you share my anti-capital convictions. Like, I just don't yeah. know. It's it one doesn't of, exist. I mean, it's one of the most capitalist things you can do, right? It's like, it is, I am part of the landed gentry, right? Yeah. Like that's there, not because there's an option that I chose against, but because this was all that was afforded if I wanted to avoid paying rent and like, I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> is it the lack of equity? Yeah, it's the lack of equity. It's the nature of landlords. Yeah, it's all of it. So um, what do you feel like your 100 house long block affords you in terms of community? Because it seems like you're doing a pretty good job with that. Right. Well, this is an interesting conversation because um, on the one hand, it affords uh, a lot of people walking by my house more than you would expect because when there are more intersections in a city people have more options for turning right and choosing other directions to go um i live at at the 50th house so i live halfway along the block and because there are so few intersections 
um, people have to walk the whole length of the block to be able to turn the corner, which means there actually is a lot of pedestrian life. There's a lot of eyes on the street. So it actually ends up being a pretty safe block. There's actually not very much crime in our block. And, you know, there, are, there is crime in the neighborhood. Um, and a lot of people make assumptions based on, you know, their racism or their expectations of the kind of place that North Philly can be. But the block's design is doing some things that no one could have planned. It's just that happens to be how the neighborhood performs. That's how the block performs. And reading that performance is very significant, like learning to see what's actually occurring rather than what you expect. Um, that, that point of surprise, uh, I find that deeply inspiring and, and to be surprised by what's happening. So for us, I mean, the tension, of course, is that I am not a North Philly local, right? I moved into this neighborhood and there's a lot that comes with my background moving into an urban center. And like not knowing how to navigate the corner stores when I first got here, oh. right? Not knowing that that's like part of city yeah, life. Yeah, it's like a huge I, culture. Yeah, you don't just go to the grocery store. Like that's not, there's a rhythm to the way that you navigate these streets right. that is indigenous to North Philly that you have to learn if you didn't grow up in this. Otherwise, you're going to be part of the death of this neighborhood to gentrification, right? If I'm bringing my suburban habits with me, that's different than what's afforded. That's just me having an internal model that doesn't match the things that the neighborhood's trying to explain to me, right? Um, so that's been some of the learning that I've been doing because what I've, what I've tried to build here is yes, having friends nearby, having people that I can commune with. Um, lately, we've been hosting movie nights on Sunday night called Sunday Scaries. We watch horror <laughs> movies. Um, that's clever. So we just watched Get Out. A lot oh, of people hadn't seen it. It's so pretty good. wild to watch with people who haven't seen it. We did The Shining, um, which I 100% believe is a true american masterpiece i have so many i've never seen the shining i should watch um, it oh it is spectacular i think it's about the idea of history as where things take place not when um and the hotel is a is a metaphor synecdoche whatever the word is for america and the colonization of america um, and the genocide of native americans i i, I strongly okay. recommend this movie. <laughs> i really love this you're movie. like this is um, the fucking movie I was incredibly stoned the last time I watched it, so maybe I'm seeing more than there's actually there, but I, I truly believe this movie has some of the keys to um, understanding how we adapt to history yeah. based on our relationship with place. Um, and the, you know, history has imprints made in a place as we walk it, the way that footprints are made in the snow. And our identity is more that the tracks that we, we, we pass through a place and we can be known by the paths that we carve not just by the words that we say right. or by the ideas that we think, but by where our bodies go and who those bodies encounter, right? That's the kind of stuff that my neighborhood affords, every neighborhood affords. Right. Um, and to learn to be indigenized or to pay attention to how that is performing and not just come with my own expectations, that's been the process for me mm -hmm. recently. So how, do you, how did you feel that that sort of like the ecology of place integrated or how did that integrate with your faith? Because you were... You know, you said that you were trying to kind of pursue this through seminary or do this for a church, right? So what is that? I, I'm very much on board with like the being, you know, very like aware of the like your physical ecology and, you know, understanding how your body is interacting with the literal neighborhood that you're in right now. What does that mean for being a progressive Christian and for the church that you wanted to work for or that you were sure. working well, for? I'll be, I'll be honest. There's a reason I'm not working for <laughs> <laughs> but real talk i mean it's like i didn't find this um i haven't really found this in most any community um this is not a perspective that i've encountered in a lot of the ecological circles that i've worked with right um even among farmers who are 
you know, deeply faithful farmers, there's still more of an attention to the metaphors of the way that the Bible talks about land and place than actually taking seriously. No, Jesus was homeless. Jesus navigated the world by foot, by walking. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something meaningful to the idea of that, that, that movement through the world as the way we perceive, not just the stasis and expecting things to come to us. Right. There's, a, there's something about processing by movement. Um, I, I'm, I'm working out my relationship with my faith. I don't know how much faith either of you possess or how much you've experienced, how much, you know, faith traditions have, have weighed on you um, or given to you, but it's been a very mixed bag for me. I owe so much of what I am, of who I am to the kinds of generosity and mercy that's been extended to me in spaces of faith. Mm-hmm. But I'm also uncovering more and more the patterns of thought, habits of mind, the ways I use my body that are deeply colonial. I mean, just rife. Right. With all the, the layers of white supremacy that my faith practice has blinded me to seeing. I mean, it's um, so hard because, right. I mean, you know, Protestantism, like the Christianity that is that we're kind of used to and exposed to is like so deeply ingrained in the colonizer history of our country. Right. That, you know, that it was these um, doctrines of discovery, right? These are originally like uh, writs of the Pope that were opening up colonization as a concept, as an imaginary, as a like set of imaginary horizons right. that were possible. These were, these were given by ways people read the Bible. To take the argument of affordances one step further, the, the teachings of Jesus afforded patterns of colonization, right? There wasn't specificity enough. There wasn't a tradition of holding oppression to account yeah. enough, um, especially in the Catholic Church in Europe, that you know, I, honestly, I feel like, you know, a lot of Christians point back towards the Garden of Eden yeah. as the story that we're always like looking towards. I would no, it has to be Columbus. It has to be Columbus landing in the new world. <laughs> Clearly. That is the moment from which all of our, our understanding of ourselves, our faith, what God is up to. That is a, a branching point that Christians just overlook. And I think that speaks to the kind of, um, I don't know what term to use, but the, 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 the kind of lack of awareness, the lack of perception. Um, that that faith in America has engendered in me. So yeah. that's the stuff. That's where I am right now. And the reason I'm not working in a church, I stay connected. Right? Community is incredibly important to me. This is like everything that I'm about. Community, as described, very broadly. Yeah. Right. Relationship with everything and everyone. Um, and I mean that like the relationship with the table, the relationship with the inanimate objects that are far more vibrant than we give them credit for. Yeah. And as well, of course, the soil, the the birds, the things that. Um, nourish us and give us life. I mean, all of that is very important to me. But the the framing uh, that the church places around this that um, that enshrines the human at the top of a hierarchy, I just I I just don't have the energy to fight that. It's just <laughs> so powerful. Right. And I'm I'm gonna work in other places with people who are doing different things. Yeah. Um. To answer your question about faith background, so I was, yeah. Tell me about you guys. Yeah. yeah no, I was raised. Um, I was raised Baptist, but like loosely Baptist and that we didn't really go to church, but there were, you know, like crucifixes with Jesus, like little miniature Jesus all over the house. Right. And yeah. Um, and I, th- I think I got all the bad shit, you know, mm-hmm. I got the, um, I got like a really, really deeply ingrained fear of going to hell. Right. I'm sorry. I got a really, really, um, 
and that like translated to the my grandparents who were like you know kind of the, the christian the people who taught me their christian values were you know slowly dying of cancer and so i was like being kind of staring death in the face through someone else mm. um oh. in the but having this weird lens of like being you know like so afraid of fucking going to hell you know and like yeah. and like <laughs> it's just so it was bizarre and like you know i just i have these um these like stark memories of moments in time where like my grandmother or my grandfather said something to me about what a Christian was supposed to believe that I just remember being like, this, this isn't fucking true. You know, like yeah. it can't be, you know, and the, yeah. the, <laughs> the earliest moment, I think I've said this on the show before, but I was like nine years old or eight years old. And I came home from elementary school, super excited about dinosaurs. Right. I was like, dinosaurs are fucking lit (laughs) they're so cool right like insane and my grandmother like listened to me talk like let me talk through my excitement and then was like well just so you know dinosaurs were put into the ground by the devil to make you doubt god and that they and they were not real and i and i just and also santa claus is a fucking (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no santa claus saint nicholas that was fine right fine that i believe that but the fucking dinosaurs no so i um i remember i still remember like i can put myself back in my nine-year-old head and thinking yeah. to myself i don't think that's fucking true oh, no. <laughs> you know yeah like i just don't think and that really honestly was the start of my like my drifting yeah. from mm-hmm. from religion and it happened and then it was, you know, I think like the next watershed moment was with, you know, like circa 2006 and seven and eight, when we were really talking about gay marriage in the, in the, in the church. And, right, yeah, yeah. and, you know, I, my grandmother, um, I don't remember this much as much from my grandfather, but my grandmother was so hateful towards gay people, you know, like, just like really really like you know called him the f word and like whenever she saw someone on tv that like yeah just like was really kind of nasty and and i never you know i i as a child i didn't like question it but i didn't i was never like yeah fuck these guys or whatever but then i i uh gained a, like a really great cl- close friend who i'm still really close with um in high school who was clearly gay um Hmm. was closeted at the time came out to me in like sophomore year or so and had this i just had this kind of like big reckoning um where i was like you know i truly don't believe in a god that would cast people to hell Hmm. because of the way that they are you know or the way that um or because of them not being exposed to christianity and i asked like my grandparents and people um okay so like if people that don't believe in god are going to hell what about the people that just don't know about god you know Mm -hmm. like the people that like weren't taught were never taught and she was and no one could really ever give me a good answer about that so um Mm. so i went from you know i like there was a moment where i would like pray most nights or whatever and then i'd say slowly but surely throughout my high school career i drifted to eventually just like a point where I kind of stopped caring about 
whether or not there was a God or wasn't a God. And, you know, I kind of like honed in on Jesus and I was like, all right, this guy, regardless of like, you know, the, 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 the version of Jesus that we're sold, you know, at his core, like stood for justice, stood for equality, stood for these things that I cared about. And I strived and I think still strive to be Christ-like in those ways, but Mm -hmm. I've completely divorced that from any kind of faith. You know, like I don't care about Christianity or like, I don't care about believing in God or the Bible or any of that shit. I just care about like, like this, this was a, at its core, I think a really good model for behavior. Right. Justice, liberation. Um, Yeah. So that's, that's where I'm at now. Isabel. That's dope. Thanks for sharing. Thank you. DeAndre, why, why do you think when you were nine years old, you thought this isn't true? Like, I think I, you know, like, cause I feel like you often don't, I mean, like, this is just like your, your, the people who raise you are often your sort of source of truth. Right. Like what made you question it then? I mean, it was, I think probably the first or one of the first times that someone told me that something I learned in school was not true. Mm-hmm. My grandparents mm-hmm. like really fucking like hammered in they wanted me to be great at school and I was Mm -hmm. as a child, right? Like I, you know, was in like the academically gifted and I loved, I loved science. Like I I grew up as a child loving science and animals and things like that. And like, I'd Mm -hmm. watch the discovery channel for fun. And these are things that I fundamentally believed in. Like I just loved how science worked. I love biology and I love like learning about animals and the things like that. And so I don't know. Something just clicked where I'm like, I just spent like three days learning about dinosaurs and you're telling me they're not real because the devil put them like that's. And I just, I think, (laughs) I think, I think part of me was like, I certainly as a child, part of me was like, I don't want to believe that's true. Right. Cause I love dinosaurs and I think that's sick. And then also I, I do remember part of me being like, I just don't think, I just don't, I don't agree with that. Mm. And yeah. Um, like, I don't think that my teachers just lied to me for four days. Mm-hmm. about it you know and i don't think like you know and i'd watch like you dis- don't think there was yeah, yeah. And, I'd, and i'd watch like discovery specials on this so i'm like i just didn't think that there was this big cover-up conspiracy happening with the devil mm-hmm. um but then uh, but then i'm also i'm sure that at the moment or at the time i was scared to believe that because i i mm-hmm. i remember like asking my grandmother like two to three times does god know what you're thinking and she said yes for sure and i said okay like if i'm thinking bad things like am i gonna go to hell and she was like you know you just gotta you like you just gotta sort that out like just don't think about shit like that you know and and so you know i was that that can of worms is worth opening though oh (laughs) it's super worth opening yeah especially for you know, I was like, I've always been a very like existential kid. Right. And I was mm-hmm. like, I was kind of freaked out by the fact that I was alive. I would think about the fact that I was alive mm-hmm. constantly and like that it was weird and that I was living my own life and that my cousins in South Carolina were living their own parallel lives that I had at the same, at time, the same yeah. time that fucked me up and it still kind of fucks me up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the word Sonder or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And so, <laughs> and and I was terrified of dying and I was terrified of going to hell. So these are things that I thought about all the time. And I thought about like, I thought about like, damn, I like just had a negative thought where I like wanted to punch someone in the face. Am I going to hell for that thought? Mm-hmm. You know? 
Mm. And these that was what I was trying to get at. That is so Yeah, it sucked. Um and so now, yeah, you know, I, I, I just, something about that dinosaur shit didn't sit right with me at nine years old. You know, it was just like, was <laughs> like something's up. something about it. And I, was, and I, you know, I had like, yeah, I had had some dissonance already. And then I learned like in high school about the fact that this is another big moment for me when I learned that almost every culture, every culture had its own, uh, like great flood story like Babylonian culture. Really? Yeah. Many, many cultures have this great flood story. Right. And cultures that are way older than Christianity, like, like super much like Mesopotamia has. A, I didn't know that. Yeah. Mesopotamia has a great flood story. And, you know, we were talking about why that was an AP laying. And the reason was probably like, it's probably just that these cultures experienced a big flood and assumed that it was all over the world, right? Or whatever, mm-hmm. and connected it to whatever de- deism that they had. And um I was uh, something about that maybe be like, "Wait, damn, Christians are really out here making it like acting like they made it up." And they didn't make it up. <laughs> <laughs> that like that yeah. that in itself was a fundamental like un, you know, unreconcilable flaw in this situation. I'm like you know, like the Bible, how can the Bible be this originator of text when we have evidence of, you know, societies way older than any, any form of Christianity ever was like, telling essentially like the same story, you know, at that point, the, the Christianity that I was wrestling with was like the world is only 20,000 years old Christianity. And, and I'm like, bitch, this culture that's like over a hundred thousand years old or however fucking old it was was like they had the same story you guys just copied it from that (laughs) um so that was another big like another big when i'm thinking about watershed moments that kind of pulled me away from faith that was another one it is kind of wild actually that we still use that system like bc and like all of that in our just right like we're probably never gonna stop no it especially (laughs) speaks to the power of empire married with christianity right it's a roman thing and it's Christianity that's yeah. like piled on top of it, right? Totally. So the idea that Christianity can be such a buttress to empire, like, I mean, that shit is rough to consider, right? Rough. Yeah. So yeah, I I just couldn't grab yeah. my head all around it, you know? And I just like ended up just being like, yo, it's mm-hmm. not worth it. Like, whatever. If like, <laughs> I just ended up truly not believing that like a God that was awesome and just was going to send me for to hell for like, just trying to be the best person yeah. that I could be and not getting mm-hmm. baptized, you know, whatever. So. Yeah. I had like nothing. Uh, in fact, it's, it's almost funny. Cause I almost had the opposite thing because my parents raised me pretty like anti-theist, like the, the root of a lot of the evil in the world is religion basically. And, um, it's funny because I, I didn't have like the same, I didn't have any sort of like moment like that at like, you know, nine years old where I'm like, oh, this is wrong. Cause I don't think I had this like particularly strong presumption that like my parents were, you know, like right about everything when I was a kid. But like, um, because I, I, my parents don't really like act super strongly as like an authority figure in our household. So I think mm-hmm. it was like, we, we are sort of like more on an equal playing field in that way. But I do think that the more I have 
these types of conversations with, you know, like we've on our show, we've now had a number of episodes like with, you know, with mm. this guy who's a Mormon and like you mm-hmm. know, other other Christians and like, yeah, all kinds of, um, you know, people from different yeah, faith, a lot of faith episodes. Yeah. And I do think that like probably the area where I feel most sort of disillusioned is just that like it does really have so much from a community standpoint to offer that just is not the case for secular society. And I do think that that is one of the things that like my parents really lack in their lives. Like they don't really have a adult community of like friends or kind of just like, Mm -hmm. you know, peers that they hang out with and, you know, are in a supportive community with. That's a really good point. I mean, even that, that community argument can, can really hurt sometimes because communities can be incredibly toxic, right? And it would be better to not be there at yeah. all. Right. Um, but like to think <laughs> of the idea of community in faith as the matter of like relating to your ancestors or tradition. Um, I forget who said it, maybe in Chesterton or something, but like tradition is giving your ancestors a vote, giving the past a vote. Um, and the idea of relating back to what was possible, what was available, what was afforded to those that came before me and how did they make sense of that? Um, I think being a person of faith has helped me show mercy on my ancestors because I can be incredibly judgmental of everyone, especially people who gave me the shit that I'm dealing with now, you know? Um, But the idea with faith is like, no, there's something Mm -hmm. about this idea of justice that kept them coming back. There's something about the idea of mercy, um, the relationship between justice and mercy that, has not been worth walking away from even in the shit that my ancestors dealt with. And I want to, I want to pay attention to that. Right. Um, That's been really hard because a lot of the, a lot of the work of dealing with my ancestry has been pretty confusing because I don't know a lot about the Chinese ancestry that I come from. Um, A lot of it's pretty shadowy and murky. Um, A lot of it's been concealed from me. Um, and a lot of like my Chinese side's adherence to Christianity was in no small part an adherence to white supremacy, a hope to bestow whiteness to the next generations as an inheritance, right? And so that's that's part of the vote that has me deeply troubled, right? To say the least. Um, mm-hmm. But there's still this question of like, what was it that, um, you know, is there still some surprising goodness? that might still be sitting in this that's worth attending to. So I don't know. I, I'm all mixed up about this. You know, I'm, I, I, have, I, have no, I have no shame in admitting that this, this shit is hard and weird. Um, but I, I do think attention to the numinous, attention to the, the reality that we are embodied spirits or um, spirits and bodies, like, like how that, that mystery fits together, like all of that. Call it what you want. Like, I just think those yeah. conversations are great. I enjoy them. And maybe that's what I call faith at this yeah. point. Yeah. I feel like I've really been experiencing that with a culture that is not my own through my partner who is Jewish. And uh, we have been dating and are now engaged for like five years. Um, And in that time, I've gotten to partake in like a lot of seders for Passover, a lot of some Hanukkahs and like Shabbats. And I think that like, I find it very moving and very beautiful to honor the, the, you know, to, just even being the presence of this like tradition that even though it's evolved and changed a little bit, these people are still doing to honor their ancestors or, you know, to honor. Cause like for, 
my, you know, my partner and many of her friends are not very, are not religious at all. Right. They're just like partaking in these traditions because it keeps them connected to their people. And I think that that's even for me, even more moving than like doing it to honor God or whatever. Right. Because, you know, it's just like, I, I, in my, my upbringing didn't have any of that. And like the community that I feel in those spaces are, is yeah, it's hard to replicate, you know, even with people that I don't even fucking like sometimes. Right. It's like, it's like still feels very, um, special and very sacred to be like in that, in that room as they're saying their, their prayers, you know, in like in an old tongue, that's almost, you know, that's like, I don't want to say almost dead because there's whole nations of people that speak Hebrew, but like in a whole tongue that, you know, is that their, you know, their ancestors spoke. That's wild. I think that (laughs) that is one cool thing like about, I I mean, I don't know if this is true for other religions, but I do feel as if like I I have a number of Jewish friends where like it's not I guess maybe it has to do with the fact that it's like kind of a culture and a religion and it's like not quite in this like defined space. But like where you totally can just be invited into those spaces as someone who doesn't practice those, you know, Mm. that tradition. And uh, I feel as if at least in my experience, it could be totally an anecdotal thing. That has been particularly, you know, the case with Judaism more so than 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 other spaces. And um, I wonder if that in of itself is like part of the longevity <laughs> of a religion, <laughs> right? It's like trying not to be exclusive, right? Yeah. Um, Christians don't. I mean, I I don't want to make blanket statements, but I've never experienced any, anything in Christianity that's like. That's like, you know, this is an ev- a gathering that we're doing on a weekly basis that is not like we're doing this at home. We're with our friends and we're doing like something that feels comfortable and homey to us that also involves food, also involves like community and togetherness. And like, you know, like there's some light, you know, there's some light mm-hmm. curation, but it's really like the thing the thing that you're doing the most to honor God or honor your ancestors is just like kicking it with your friends and doing so to honor, you know, honor your, the ones you came before. And I, 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 I never found any, I, I was never exposed to anything like that when I was, yeah. you know, a Christian. Oh, I hear you. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is all I do with my church at this point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, you know, I'm, I'm, like that's, that's what I'm in for. I'm not really in for a lot of rest of it. Um, one thing I, 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 on the, on the note of tradition, something that came to mind, um, I've been thinking a lot about the idea of religion as cover, um, religion as a means of camouflage, um, as a way in which Mm -hmm. people use it to survive, right. And use it as an intellectual or a social or, a um, even epistemological shield that lets you survive in a, in a, in a system like white supremacy, like capitalism. That otherwise will, will is is always trying to break you, right? So the idea of hush harbors. Are you familiar with hush harbors um, from plantations? No, no. So um, enslaved people, after working in the fields, would come, like in the middle of the night, they'd steal away into the woods or steal away into the wilderness and and gather boughs um, of branches of of things that they could find in the woods and make these circles that would deaden the sound. And inside, um, we can only surmise what happened. We don't actually have record because these were spaces that were designed to be hidden. 
So it's probably a mixture of a lot of African religion traditions with the lingua franca of Christianity, right? A common religious experience that everyone from all of their different backgrounds is experiencing in plantation church as this tool of oppression. Um, and then what's happening in hush harbors is a lot of this starts mixing together. We don't know exactly very much about hush harbors. We know they exist because we have the blues, because we have black church, because of all the ways, things that are downstream from these spaces where the synthesis happened um, exactly around what you're describing, right? Making meaning in the middle of immense suffering um, and using the means that you have available to you, what's afforded to you. Um, and something about the story of yeah. Exodus specifically, like really resonated. So like that, that happens um, in that space. Like you can see faith being used over and over in a lot of different spaces as the means that were available for people to make sense of the oppression that they were facing. And in some circumstances, it actually brought liberative power, right? It did give people an insight, an imagination, an imaginary in which new forms of life could be could be um, expected or anticipated or even built. Um, those are the those are the parts of this that just ah, oh, I love imagining these things. I love hearing the stories of the ways in which people have like pushed for that liberation, even in the midst of like you know these are crappy tools. <laughs> We're being given some yeah. shit options, and yeah. yet there's something liberative <laughs> happening here that isn't just like it's not the text that's coming back it's the way these people are reading it and holding it to each other and saying i think right. if you look at it this way this shows a path to freedom right i see it this is this is going to help um you know and we read right. those same texts and we maybe we don't see it because we're not in the same place but our ancestors did right and i don't i don't i say i i mean this another example so say from one that it happens more with the built environment something that i've been thinking about a lot going into real estate um, Chinatown burned down during the, the great San Francisco earthquake in the early 20th century, right? But it burned down because the fire department lit it on fire because they didn't want the fire to <laughs> jump to the wealthy mansions on the other side of Chinatown. Um, so instead, so yeah. in the way that they'll like strip forests, like chop down strips of forest so that the fire won't jump to the other side, they did that yeah. in Chinatown. And there was a, a growing conspiracy of white elites, of politicians who wanted to take the land. And so they said, thought this was a great opportunity. So when China went to when Chinatown went, went to rebuild, this is like during the Chinese Exclusion Act, right? So this is a pretty marooned community. Um, they trouble getting credit, trouble getting all the resources, right? The city is organizing to take this high value land. The, or, the community organized and said, "If you touch us, if you touch one piece of our land, we're going to move all of us. We're not going to go to the East Bay. We're not going to go somewhere else where we can service you and keep working in your homes and cooking for you and cleaning. We're going to go yeah. to Seattle. We've talked to Seattle. They're fine." they'd be happy to have all of us. We'll take all of our labor, labor power and go. Um, if you touch one fucking parcel of land or Portland or wherever they're looking at. Um, and in the meantime, when they rebuilt, because uh, that, did, that did hold off the, the politicians and the people who were trying to land, yeah. they hired white architects um, and said, build Chinatown the way you think China looks. Um, and so they used the white, the white architect stereotypes and said, look, just build it so it looks Chinese. Like, We'll pay you to do it. And so there's like the way Chinatown looks is a white stereotype. Like it's got these, you know, these all these uh, Chinese architectural motifs slapped onto buildings in ways that make no sense. Like the spiritual holistic approach to a, a building and space punctuate all of these things that make so much sense in Chinese culture have very little bearing on what actually takes place in Chinatown. <laughs> all of that's just because these white guys are like, well, here, this kind of looks Chinese. Take that. And that that let Chinatown stay. Because those buildings have no value to white people who didn't want to live in Chinese looking buildings. They only had value to Chinese people who wanted to live there, right? 
the place was the value. They wanted to stay together. They wanted to stay proximate in a, in a community that was sheltered. So they used the stereotypes of whiteness that whiteness held about their community as cover. Does that make sense? That is that is that, yeah. that yeah. cleverness, that, is that use of the like, box, yeah. the trickery, right? That, that gets <laughs> me so excited. And I think there's a lot of that in faith traditions. I think there's a lot of that in the stories that we use and the way that we tell the history of our ancestors. I think sometimes these stories, they're cover. I'm using quote marks for those of you who are listening on the, on the um, we tell these stories in seriousness, but also with maybe there's a shadow on the other side. Like there's something about this that spoke to us in a particular moment, in a particular way in these hush harbors, in these secret networks of whispers that gave us the instructions, that gave us the power to, to push for liberation when we didn't have anything else that we could say in public because it, we would have been abused. We would have been oppressed for it, right? Like that's, that's the kind of yeah. stuff that gets me excited about studying the history of these texts and the history of these traditions as they've passed down, specifically in the kind of like oppressive empire that America is. Like as much as it can be claimed to be a Christian nation, Clearly, there's something about the language of this faith that has engendered or been a, been a part of, been part of the language um, that's brought us to where we are now and is still continuing. Yeah. Part of the language of like, yeah, of oppression integrated with, right. with you know, tales of God or whatever. Right. Like, how do, you, how do you speak while, while your oppressor yeah. is listening in a way that he won't just shut you down, yeah. you know? That's crazy interesting. Wow. I, you know, yeah. I've always known that like Chinatown, the Chinatowns aren't what fucking China looks like, but like it's <laughs> so interesting that you point out, yeah, this, like, this is what we expect from a Chinatown. And so, you know, like the, the rich, you know, white elite are going to leave it alone because, oh, you know, right. this is Chinatown. Yeah. This is like, this is low, low value because this, it looks so Chinese. Yeah. Right. And that's. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny because I'm sure there's a symmetry going on in China trying mm -hmm. to emulate Western architecture and Western buildings at the same time, but for different yeah, reasons. Yeah, this stuff fascinates me to me. Yeah. So my question for you then, I guess, is what, where have you been finding spaces of meaning making? Like maybe in those surreptitious or in those secret or in those covert ways. I know we're on a podcast, so maybe like this isn't the place to really go through all yeah. of that. But <laughs> Not necessarily so private. Much hope that these things are happening, right? Um, the the Christian attitude of hope. Last mm -hmm. thing I'll say is not optimism. It's actually dramatically different from optimism. Optimism is looking at trends and saying, "Oh, they'll probably continue. That looks pretty good." Hope is saying, "No, yeah. shit is bad, and there's no way out, but help is on the way." And we don't know but it, could, but yeah, but we could, right. But this can turn our around. activity, our participation in the life of the Spirit is part of that change that Octavia Butler describes, right? Like that's, that's the hope that we are the change that's, that's going to like alter the trajectories that we're looking at. Um, that's the exciting yeah. stuff. So where, where yes, have you, you have an answer? for you? I'm, I'm interested because this, I've, I've shared some of mine. Tell me about you. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I've been doing work in death care, right? Yeah, and it's interesting because I, I definitely have been at least witnessing for other people like, you know how there's a sort of a trope that like people get more spiritual at, at, at the end of life and things like that. And, you know, I, I've been working with, you know, sort of doula clients um, as, as a death doula. And it's really interesting to see how some people, even people who are really not, don't have any sort of like institutionalized religion in their life, you know, come up with things that amount to spirituality. Mm. And sometimes it can be sort of like supernatural. So like, you know, I've been 
you know, talking with someone recently who lost their mom about a year ago or more, a little bit more than a year ago and has been seeing a lot of these, you know, whenever they think about their mom, for example, they'll like and they're outside, they'll see like a bird mm. and it'll always be the same kind of bird mm. and it will like look at them and like cock its head in like a very sort of like <laughs> kind of humanistic way. And uh, yeah. those types of things, like, I think that, you know, especially in those times of major transition, like times when we're grieving, mm -hmm. times when we're even just like moving cities, yeah. like, I think we're a little bit more attuned to like see meaning in things that maybe we wouldn't otherwise see that kind of meaning in. Mm. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. That reminds me of my, um, my grandmother after my grandfather died that her birds were pennies. Mm. Like whenever she'd see a penny on the ground, uh, she would feel like they were coming at like just the right time to remind her mm -hmm. that like her, her husband was like still with her. Right. Right. You know? So I, I don't um, know if it's like cover exactly, but it's just notion of like, you know, finding that meaning mm -hmm. kind of somewhere. And it, and I and I think that because of like my the way I was socialized, I always try to like the most intuitive thing for me is to try to think of like a scientific understanding of why that might be happening. Right. Is it because like, you know, we are just, you know, more inclined to like I, there's this study that I learned about in psych class around like, you know, these pigeons where like, you know, they would be superstitious and, and when they would basically just get fed at random, but they would associate that, you know, them getting fed with basically whatever they happened to be right. doing at the yeah. time. So then they would start doing this thing where they would like, you know, spin around in circles three times or something mm -hmm. like expecting to get fed. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm talking yeah. about, Wes? Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, that's like the hallmark of an abusive relationship, right? It's like, you know, this like, yeah. you know, give and then take and withholding like all of that and like using that to manipulate, right? That's, that's a lot of people's experience of God. Like most mm -hmm. people, right? The experience yeah. of prayer, right? And you have to take that seriously if you're going to live a life of faith. The reality is that like past generations were handed these traditions and didn't have to question them because they, they didn't know that they were, they were questionable, right? Like that's, right. that's the, that, that's prior to the secular <laughs> age, right? You just are given, that's just your way of life. Yeah. Like you don't have a choice. This was, right? this was just, and every single Christian now is Christian after the word secular, right? Because every single decision that we're making in the modern world is in light of a, a menu of options and we're choosing one. That is secular. That is the, the, the kind of like lying to yourself that really pisses me off about faith communities, right? That when you stare at the facts of oppression, when you look at the way that your beliefs perform and you realize that over and over it produces anger, hatred, death, isolation. Um, I, I especially think of the experience of trans people because the God that I know is trans. Like it, it it's just, 100% clear. Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. Like there's so many experiences in the Bible that like speak so directly to the experiences of people that Christians are over and over trying to oppress. Um it just it, yes. it blows my mind that 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 those things cannot overlap. That <laughs> uh, it, it works me up. But I think that uh that pattern of being attentive to the evidence of something that maybe isn't even on the page, right? The evidence of like what does it look like for oppression to come what does it look like for liberation to take take root um and reading the ways yeah. in which you know jesus is giving us seeds of that in stories right it's not necessarily as many rules as stories jesus tells a lot of stories um 
Like these are the kinds of ways in which I I think this idea of cover can be helpful because our oppressors are using the same faith tradition, right? They're using the same stories. I don't know. I think I, when I, when I hear like the cover theme, I think of like comfortable and natural moments in my home that I've had with my room, my roommates who are like, I'm very, very close with, like we're all best friends and we like used to do these things in early pandemic, almost for a full year, we called them high school musical nights, HSM nights. Where we would, um, you know, it started out just, uh, you know, every Saturday we'd cook something very elaborate and watch High School Musical. And then we ran out of High School Musicals and then we, um, you know, started doing High School Musical, the musical, the series on Disney Plus. Yeah. Yeah, Which is actually fucking great. And yeah, people don't know that's where she made her start. Um, (laughs) And in these i mean but it, through these spaces we would start like really it became standard to start really processing like trauma you know mm-hmm. like we'd like be cooking and all hanging out in the kitchen and drinking or like eating you know whatever like extravagant creation we made and just like talking about the traumatic shit that happened to us as children or talk about the ways that are like that our parents you know might have raised us thinking like thinking well but how it still haunts us to this day and like mm. you know like i don't know we created community around this pretty silly thing to do but it's still you know like it was still you know making food making sustenance mm. and this reminds me of the you know your podcast episode that i listened to around food mm. there being something magical around that right like you know as a team creating a meal that is like so impressive and tastes so amazing and then, you know, that community drops our guard and, you know, we, you know, this, and this wasn't atypical for us cause we're very close, but it just provided the space for us to really like, really talk, like dive deep into our childhoods and, you know, in, in a setting that typically like on a Saturday night drunk eating food you know, at 1 a.m. is not when you think that you're like actually processing trauma. You might be like, you might be like yelling at someone drunkenly about how, you know, about like some shit that happened to you as a kid. But like, Mm -hmm. you know, this were like, these were spaces where, you know, one of us would talk at length about something terrible that we experienced and the rest of us would listen and ask questions and dive deeper. Mm. And it felt like, you know, like our own little world in that way. That's amazing. One thing I will say is like, I think an interesting comparison that just came to mind for faith communities is fan fiction Um, and the ways fan fiction communities have like become spaces for people to very meaningfully explore the meaning of what's happening in their lives. Yeah. Um, Like that idea of, right, the tools that are at your disposal, the stories that you have at hand being the ones that you use to uh, make sense of what's happening to you. Yeah. That's so legit. It's so real. Like (laughs) I hate when people like shit on fan fiction and like the ways in which fandoms like share meaning with each other. Um, yeah. I mean, obviously I, some are richer than others, right? Some stories are extremely rich. And I think, I do think the Bible is extremely rich as a, a site for exploring the self and exploring the community. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, like it literally is a, a text full of different, like different stories through which right. to, like to try to insert your views into or like see the world through. Yeah. And then reflecting also that like, whether or not these stories did or did not occur um, is maybe of less interest than to the fact that so many people, so many of our ancestors believed them to be true. Right. right? And lived as if they were true in a certain way. Right. 
I mean, that to me, whether or not they happened or not is I, the only reason I even care is because there are some people that stake their flag and them actually happening and that being the reason why they have to mistreat people. Right. Otherwise. Yeah, it sucks. It's just like, if we just like treated this like any other story that we tell to people about like, what's the moral of the story? What are the themes here? Why, why do we, why do you think that, you know, old dead people thought the story was important and like, that'd be chill if we treated the Bible like that, you know, that'd be so sick. Like I'm finding that some stories are starting to take on that level of fidelity right now, right? Like the way people talk about Octavia Butler, I mean, it's, it's really taking a different, a different um, level than just any other book, right? Octavia mm-hmm. Butler is deeply meaningful in ways that a lot of other writers have never accessed. For instance, like Dune, Dune, the movie just came out and like a lot of people love that story and the yes. ecology of it, but like Octavia Butler is different. Like it's not the same. Um, and as much as like we owe so much to Dune, like the kinds of fandom, the kinds of ways people are exploring and articulating um, what Octavia Butler can, what her work can become and what it is becoming in the world. I mean, that that is super exciting stuff to me. You're making me want to read. I know oh, I haven't read Octavia Butler either. Y'all, it's so good. And I've given up <laughs> trying to convince people to like the media that I like. I just think that's a it's a, it's a shitty way to shit on people. Um, but Octavia Butler's great. Octavia Butler's so much fun. Uh, fun <laughs> maybe is a stretch, but good, good is 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 easily easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's your fave book? Got to be Parable of the Sower. I mean, that book has so much insight. My God. <laughs> um, have you read any Adrian Marie Brown? I don't read. Uh no. <laughs> May I commend Adrian Marie Brown to both of you. Book called Emergent Strategy, books called Pleasure Activism. Uh, she's fantastic. Uh, if you're mm-hmm. ever into, you know, people like Robin Wall Kimmer, things like that, Adrian Marie Brown is the uh, black queer activist in Detroit who's like taking so much of what makes Rob- Robin Wall Kimmer appealing. Um, Robin Wall Kimmer's audience, I'll be honest, is like white yeah. people who inhabit bookstores. Um, as much as oh, she said sure. so I'm much reading. to me, I love that book so much, Braiding Sweetgrass, and I'm not throwing shade yeah. at Robin Wall Kimmer, but I just know that the, 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 the audience for Adrienne Marie Brown is, is radical. She is a radical. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. she's great. I'm reading, I'm reading Braiding Sweetgrass right now. And by reading, I mean like our house started a book right. club on it and then we did like two meetings and I haven't, and it was, I loved, I literally it is like, a long ass loved and was it blown. Takes forever. Yeah. I was blown away from with what like the three or four mm-hmm. chapters that i read but um haven't picked it up again since i'm not very good at finishing I hear, you, I hear you yeah i have it on my kindle but i haven't opened it yet <laughs> i've never tried i've never given audiobooks a real shot maybe i should give them a shot the the chapter that's worth jumping to uh for me is a mother's work um and anyone listening the chapter a mother's work and braiding sweetgrass um i find deeply meaningful and very very special mm-hmm One one wit, bit of wisdom that comes from both Judaism and Christianity, because Judaism is the premise for Christianity, right? It's indebted to it irreparably, or in, ir- irreconcilably. Like these are these are knit together. Yeah. Um, the idea of the Sabbath of rest is like the one piece of Christian hope that is tangible. 
right? You talked about heaven, we talked about hell. All that shit is contingent. Like none of it is biblical, the idea of hell. Like that's that's very, very strange, like intervening years kinds of thought. But yep. one of the oldest ideas we have is the idea of rest and being able to work and then just take a break. And like just the world will continue without you. In fact, the world is caring for you as you take a break, as you nap, as you go about your day with your kids or with your parents or whatever the fuck you want to do. It's okay because someone else is taking care of you. Um, that is probably the basis of what I believe um, and what I aim for. That's why I want people to be in homes. That's why I want communities to be safe and yeah. thriving. Is so that on the day off, everyone's just like, you know what? Everything may not be perfect, but at least I can spend time uh, taking it down. Just kicking it. Right. And yeah. productivity, capitalism, all of these things do not define me. I can just like exhale and just be for a minute. Um, so I'm thank thankful that you guys let me do that with you. Yeah, great. for sure. I've also found this conversation to be rejuvenating um, in ways that I didn't expect. I don't know. I mean, this is, this is the ending for the first of two episodes that we recorded, which is actually just one long conversation that we're going to try and <laughs> chop into two cohesive Good bits. luck. Uh, good luck to us. So for this first outro, I will ask you, um, what is uh, something like rejuvenating or dope that you've done with you know friends recently that maybe you weren't able to do um before due to pandemic reasons oh interesting question um i'm gonna say something that i've planned not something that i can do yet but the last party that i attended before the pandemic um i like hot sauces and we had a hot idiots party called hot idiots <gasps> based on the hot ones tv show so we, we West, a bunch of i literally sauces. had that same party that's great. Yeah, I had a hot like, ones party. Awesome. It was like February 28th, 2020. We had like Wait, 40 same. people in the house. Wait, yeah. hold on. What's literally on that same day? Wait, were you at my party? No, was your party? I was having a hot ones party for my birthday, like the February 26th or 27th or 28th before in 2020. That's before the, yeah, yeah, that's like my last good memory before lockdown. Wow. Wow. That is that, was, that is wild. That's okay, literally that's the last thing, the last big event that Isabel or I or all of our friends attended before lockdown. Wow. Well, you both are invited to Hot Idiots The Return, which is happening sometime in April. I just ordered all the sauces. Nice. I'm probably going to do it outside, but just the, the chance <laughs> to be together and just goof off like that, you know? And like last time we did a presentation party. So you had to bring a three minute presentation with slides on anything, any topic, but it couldn't be your work. Um, yeah. And then you would eat the bomb. And then you'd have to oh do my the presentation. God. And if every minute you went over, you'd have to eat another uh, piece of fried cauliflower. Um, well, oh my God. I literally, no, it was great. I literally just had, so for my birthday this year, we had a hot ones redux where we did it again. And I yeah. bought the sauces for this season of hot ones. Isabel Voice. was there. It was a lot of fun. I have a lot of them. Are they good? Are they good? Sauces? I, I really like the seasons of hot sauces. I thought, honestly thought that like one through like, six or seven were all good and they remade the bomb there's no mm -hmm. it's all it's like now all natural ingredients and it's oh it's still punches what was like it what before it so punishing it's, it's, pure it's extract, extract, extract but let me tell you as as it's still it still fucks you up the bomb it's is still, still the punishing. bomb yeah it's still punishing absolutely. my god <laughs> cool <laughs> uh okay so this is your space wes please plug whatever you want to plug hey if you want to <laughs> If you know anyone who's in the real estate market, send them my way. 
I mean, that's like the strangest plug, but like the conversations that I'm hoping for are the ones that bring all of who we are to all of what we want from our places. Right. And I legitimately hope to be a good sellers and buyers agent. Like I want to help people through this difficult transition using the skills that I have honed. Right. Of course, of making meaning, but of like being attentive to the emotional and spiritual needs of people. Like this is a big deal. It's a transformative choice. Um, And I want to be there for people. So I'm working at Keller Williams in Fishtown. Um, if you don't even, if you're not even in the market, but you just want to talk, you want to DM me. I'm on Instagram at Wes Wilson. Um, I just, I just like meeting people. And, uh, Wait, so you do both yeah. si- buyers and sellers? You yeah. represent both yeah, yeah. of them? Yep. Okay. So even people who are trying to sell their home can also reach out to you? Yes. Yes. Okay. Nice. Cool. Um, as always. Oh, and do us. you, sorry, do you, do you have a particular region? Um, all of Philadelphia. All of Philadelphia. I'm, I'm particularly okay. good here in Fishtown and the River Wards, right? Fishtown, Port Richmond, Kensington. Yeah. But I can do anywhere. I'm licensed in all of PA. Cool. Um, and as always, you can find us at I'm the Villain Pod. That's our Gmail. That's our Twitter. That's our Instagram. Otherwise, bye. <laughs>